Welcome to Bandits Keep. I'm Daniel. It is October 12th. That is OSR October 12th. Day 12 of OSR October. This is a call-in show. I started working on this a few days back and had some technical issues. So if you may hear me mention, I think, October 8th a couple of times. <laughs> but it's done now. And if you've called up to this point with calls about OSR October or other things, the calls should be here. If not, then they will be on a show coming up. I think I'm not going to do massive call-in shows uh, generally. I think I'll try to add the call-ins to my other episodes. So if you do want to call in, check the show notes for ways to reach me, including my Discord server, which you should jump on and hang out because we're having a lot of fun over there. But without further ado, let's get to the calls. All right. These first two call-ins are from Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast. These are old <laughs> and uh I think they're the oldest of the ones I have. So I just want to take care of these first, and then we'll jump into what is likely going to be OSR-related, OSR-October-related, I should say, Collins. Hey, Daniel. Jason here. Calling regarding your latest episode. Um, I, I'll have to get back to you on why I talk about gaming, because that's my hobby, I guess. I mean, I, I don't know. I talk about all kinds of stuff on my show, though. I talk about movies and different kinds of gaming and motorcycles and so I, I don't just talk about gaming, but I talk about gaming because it's a hobby and it's something I enjoy. So, you know, same reason I talk about the movies I enjoy or TV shows or whatnot. Now, as far as we we're talking about, or you were answering my first call where we were talking about, you know, miniature games and how you're kind of going towards if you have a good combat system, that's enough. I mean, that's kind of what Boot Hill is, right? Boot Hill, effectively, you have like gambling rules, but for the most part, Boot Hill 1st, 2nd edition are just combat rules, but they don't hinder the roleplay part at all. You can still roleplay perfectly fine. So, yeah, I, I think that's a reasonable hypothesis. I can see why people want a few more things in there, and I can see why you would do things that you really don't like to do, like, you, you know, roll against people's attributes to figure out some things. But for the most part, I, or maybe it's Rob over down the heap that doesn't like it when you do the ability checks against tributes. But either way, I, I definitely can can see why you'd want a little more than just combat. But for the most part, I think a combat system really is all you need mechanically. And I think you can just role play through just about everything else. Okay, on to listen to the rest of the show. In regards to set piece battles, I definitely think that could work, although I haven't put it in practice yet. That is the same thing I was thinking about with the Street Fighter campaign I want to run using the old white 90s White Wolf Street Fighter game where every two weeks we would get together virtually and do a battle during the virtual session and that would be the tournament. So there's a tournament every two weeks. But then we would get on Discord or wherever and do play-by-post in the intervening two weeks which would handle all the out-of-combat stuff all the espionage stuff and all the side missions or all the whatever would be handled play by post. And then the tournaments would be handled together live, quote unquote, online, you know, on a virtual tabletop or whatever, or however we ran it. Right. So that's kind of my thought. And, and it's pretty similar to what you're suggesting there, I think. So, yeah, I definitely think it could work. And I'm interested to hear how your games at Gary kind of go. Okay. So if you don't remember, cause it was a while back, I had made a statement or I was talking about the idea of, I had made a tweet where I said, all you really need is a combat system and the rest is role play. And it got a whole lot of, whole lot of people not agreeing with me. Some people agreeing. And I, I kind of still stick by that because we were talking about the idea of skirmish games and 
my concept would be, and my concept that I'm going to try to run at Garricon is effectively kind of a, a loose, almost story game format as like your in-between scenes, if you will, your travel, your interaction with barkeeps, whatever the system might be. And then you bust out miniatures, or I guess you could do it there in the mind as well, for things that where that matters, right? You're doing some kind of risky thing, your uh, combat would be the most obvious thing. And that's basically what I'm thinking. I mean, is that is, is are there different stages to the role playing game? Is the concept of full immersion, everything, nothing should take away from immersion. You want the simplest game possible so that you never have to think you can pretend you're your character the whole time. Is that the most fun for me, right? And I think the answer there is no. And I think I'm probably not alone. So this is where I come into this idea. I love doing separate little mini games. I love doing all these other things. So I, that's kind of where that comes from. So I'm curious. I know that Jason was uh, whipping up a skirmish uh, campaign with his son, I believe, using some kind of Western rules. So uh, when he gets that uh, to the table, eventually, I can't wait to uh, hear the results there because I'm very curious about these things. And Daniel, this is Taylor over at Clearitzware Ringmail. Calling him from the web browser on my mobile phone. So the link that you put in your show notes worked perfectly. It uh, jumped out of my podcatcher into the browser, popped open the little tab with the record me button, and it actually paused the episode at the same time because the browser requested microphone rights. <laughs> so that is working as designed. And the reason for the call, I appreciated the introduction to your latest episode. People have been lamenting for a couple years now about the death of the OSR or the lack of community in RPGs. But the truth of the matter is the community you have is the community you make. And people don't disappear from your life unless you let them. So I appreciate what you're doing to try to cultivate a positive community based on shared enjoyment of the hobby. That's the same thing I'm doing over on my end. That was Taylor over at Clerics Wear Ringmail. Thanks, Taylor. Yeah, you know, I think community is super important. And yeah, your uh, Discord and whatnot is, is, is booming houses over there this morning. Uh, you know, I think that you're 100% right. And I was just reading it. I don't normally read uh, business type books, which is weird since I've been in business for myself for so long. But uh, it's this book called Tribes by a gentleman named Seth Godin. And I guess if I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes for me. It's interesting. It's a little bit old now, but. It talks about building communities and how a lot of times people feel like only the managers or the supervisors or the the bosses can kind of, because it's a business book, can kind of control or shift or create community. And this talks about the idea that that's not the case and that people can build communities around the various, uh, well, what he calls tribes, right? Which is communities around basic ideas and, and concepts, whether they be business or, also, or social. So yeah, pretty cool. And that's what I'm trying to do. I want to make my community inviting so that anybody who is interested in expressing themselves through role-playing games, whether it be straight-up skirmish fighting games, whether it be full-on play acting, whether it be somewhere in the middle, come on down. I love to play with all different types of people, and I hope more people join the community. And I love to, to work with, to play with, and to learn from others. Question for you. I remember you mentioning, and I forget where, it might have been Discord, might have been another podcast, might have been YouTube, I don't remember, but you mentioned running Chainmail at GaryCon and having a group of heroes come out and fight off a huge army. Um, but you had to forego the post-melee morale because if you didn't, 
the sheer weight of numbers of the enemy would cause surrenders, routes, and retreats for the player characters. That's something that's interesting to me because seeing it run on Joy of Wargaming, you would have the entire block contribute to the melee morale. And so the smaller force, even if it came out on top, even if it was positioned correctly to repel those, they would still surrender uh, to a surrender superior force. And that didn't sit right with me because Thermopylae, you would not be able to recreate Thermopylae because the immortals would hit and then the Spartans would win a combat, but then surrender. So I guess my question is, were you using the bulk of the immortals or just the ones in the front? Looking at the post-melee morale rule, I'm going to read step two and step three together. The side with the greater number of surviving troops, which were involved in the melee, determines the positive difference between the number of his troops and the enemy. Uh, this number is noted. Each side now multiplies their surviving figures, separating them by type, if more than one type is involved, on the following morale factors. So for me, that tells me that the surviving figures, the troops that we're noting, they're only the ones who are fighting. So if we have bases of 20 men each and we have five across, we would calculate based on those five, not on the 10, 15, or 20 that are behind that first five. That doesn't preclude the possibility of surrender. Recall, if you have combats fewer than 20, you're going to double the result. And two, that doesn't preclude having a boatload of people press against you because you can get uh, flanked. You can get encircled by a superior force. But if you read it to where only the bases or the units involved in the melee itself, the ones that are contributing dice to the pool, if you rule it to where those ones are the ones who determine the morale, your combats are going to be very different. And it's going to make those heroes who have a morale weight of 20 a lot bigger on the battlefield. So just calling the request for clarity on how you did it, not commenting right, wrong, or indifferent, but comparing notes and based on your experience, I can apply it to my own. Hope to hear back. Love to see when your podcasts drop and have a great morning. Okay, so that was, uh, again, uh, Taylor asking about how I was running Chainmail. I ran it at Gen Con recently, and I, I mentioned that when I looked at it, I only had, I had each one of the heroes, well, technically each hero was running 50 horsemen. There were two uh, cubes or stands, I guess you call them, of 25. So the hero was only with one of them because they did split. And what happened was a a 25 horse stand charged a group of goblins, which was 300 or 500 goblins. I can't remember how much it was. Now, because of the way that the charging rules work, it actually worked to their advantage because it, it would have pushed it back one way or the other, right? Because if you're charging, you got to make a, a save against the charge. But I did do exactly what Taylor's saying. I used the total, I, I didn't use the rule because I looked at the total volume of the goblins versus the total volume of the horsemen. And yeah, that's the same way that Joy of Wargaming does it, I'm pretty sure. It is a little bit odd, but if you think, and you are right, you you can't do that. But then again, I think that, that you know, I don't think that the game is made to focus upon such tight in, you know, holding a small little uh, 
gate, right? Maybe you just man-to-man for that. I, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, that's how I did it. And that's why I decided to remove the rule. Doing it the way you're saying it actually is pretty clever and would be nice. I still think in that sense that the the group would have still lost by a lot because with the 300 goblins, there was like five stands of goblins. So I think they could have wrapped around the horses, meaning that all five stands and there was, I think it was, I think it was 10 stands in two rows. I'd have to remember, but something, something to the effect of like 50 goblins would have been wrapped around these horses. So even with the advantage of being on a horse, even if you only counted the goblins that could touch bases, they'd still be something like triple or more uh, the number. And in one of the bases, the hero wasn't with them. Now, you do make an interesting point, though, too, because you talk about who's fighting. But see, when now when I use the... So this is interesting, and I've seen people do this both ways. So uh, I'd be curious what you do here. When I put a hero with a group like that, the hero doesn't count in a sense. They just give a bonus of plus one to all the dice, meaning that the hero is there, but he's not really in the front row, right? The hero is just wherever the hero is. doesn't actually matter because you're still doing horses in the front. Let's say I've got five horses across the front. They all just fight as one horse apiece, but they get a bonus of plus one. If I assumed the hero was in the, that lead rank, then it would be four horses, then plus four more, right? Because the hero fights as four and you do eight. So I'm curious if that's how you're doing it or not, because that is interesting. I had thought about doing it both ways, but in the end, it seemed like more people were doing it the other way. The hero just straight up gives a bonus to the group. And honestly, that feels a lot more balanced if you do it that way. I should also add here that uh, what Taylor's talking about is morale. <laughs> and I was talking about the combat. So to answer the question or to not make things more confusing for you, Taylor, when figuring out the morale for the group, I add everybody up that's that's in the block, including the hero, and give them the bonus or whatever. They get like 20 points or something, right? But when I'm doing the combat, the hero just gives a plus one to everybody there. They don't actually fight themselves. That is, they don't count as four more men or four men, period. They just are one more of the 25 that's there, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I'm curious which one, which way you do that. Let me know. Hey, Daniel. Pink Phantom here. Uh, I was just listening to your episode when you were talking about uh, the two parties essentially being in the same locale and eventually confronting one another. I wonder if for that kind of a situation within a, you know, a, a home group structure, if that might not be something that where the exploration part at least could be done as a play by email or play by post. And it was something that you could, something that people could just deal with every day or every other day or something leading up to the session where the two parties end up in the same same location and have to confront one another. Hi, Daniel. Uh, I'm calling in from the Claw Claw Rend podcast. Uh, I'm listening to all your stuff completely out of order, so I apologize if I'm commenting here on something that you're uh, way past. But uh, the episode on playing as the bad guys, I thought that was fantastic. Uh, that's such an interesting idea and something I've always wanted to do. Uh, coming from kind of a wargaming background uh, with Warhammer fantasy, just thinking like being able to play as like the undead or um, chaos or something like that was always fascinating. And uh, somehow getting to be able to do that in an RPG would just be great. Um, 
I'd like to hear more about that, and I'm excited to see what you come up with. Uh, thanks again. All right, so that was Pink Phantom and Claw Claw Rend. I'm kind of answering these together because I think they're kind of similar in, in the way I'm handling them. So I'm kind of creating in my head, anyways. <laughs> now I've got I've actually gone more macro. Is that the word? Uh, where it's like spreading out, zoomed out, we'll call it, on this idea because I started watching the Game of Thrones series. But this idea of different players playing different factions and doing their own deals, right? And then at some point interconnecting and then having your skirmish or your war or whatever, even just social interaction and uh, debates is very fascinating to me. I think it's a way that we can create TV show type, right? Novel type stories that I don't think you can really easily create when you are an adventuring party running down hallways of a dungeon together. I know that people play all kinds of political games and I've seen people talk about it and I've seen occasional actual plays where people do it. But it seems to me that that kind of stuff doesn't work as well when you've got lots and lots of players all gathered around at the same time. It seems the type of stuff that works the best when players are free to interact with each other privately and with the referee privately so that they can create intrigue. Now, you might be saying, how the heck does this tie into what Claw Claw Rend said? Well, the reason that I say they're kind of the same is because they're on different levels. You could have, so of course, with the playing the bad guys, if you missed that, that episode, basically I got inspired by this game called Gaslight or be, to be continued by Gaslight. And you're playing through what is effectively like a uh, episodes of a, of a serial is the way it is the idea of it, right? So you have your, your key characters, your uh, Indiana Jones or whatever, and they are Flash Gordon. And they're moving through a series of 12 or 15 different uh, games, which makes up the campaign, but they're basically skirmish battles, right? But what you do is instead of having the ref, like you do in D&D, right, where there's a referee that plays the bad guys, you have other players play the bad guys, right? So you've got Bob over here who runs Flash Gordon and Flash Gordon's people. And then you've got Joe over here that runs the other people, right? They have Ming and then Ming's minions, in each of the scenarios, some of Ming's minions come into play, so Joe runs those minions. And But Rob, did I say Rob or John or whoever's running Flash Gordon, that person is always running Flash Gordon. And that's kind of how you do it. But in more of a role play standard kind of setup, I was thinking you would have one player that have to totally buy into it, right, to be the bad guys, right? So you're the DM, you make the map of the orc's lair, you give the player that's the orc player you give them the map, you tell them wh who they have in the different rooms. You have 10 orcs here, five orcs here, an orc leader there. And then when the player characters enter into those spaces, the player that's playing the orcs will do the combat and the maneuvering and that stuff. This would probably work out better if you use miniatures and stuff, so it feels like a little bit more maybe fun for the orc player. But actually, if the orc player is really down, right, maybe there's somebody who's really into playing, maybe they DM themselves, they like to just do more than just play the game during the one day a week. Maybe they get together with the DM and they go, all right, here's my lair, right? And the DM becomes almost more of a referee. So that other player is creating their own lair for the orcs with traps and this and that. And then the, the referee or the DM is adjudicating that lair while they're going through it. And then the orc player fights when their their minions become available, if that makes sense. Yeah, I kind of I like this idea. Well, it's going to have to bounce around in my brain a little bit more, but let me know what you guys think. Good day, sir. Kevin here from the Red Caps Podcast. Wanted to say, really enjoyed hearing 
your definition of the OSR and how you kind of linked it all into the history, uh, your gaming history. It was, it was really well done. Uh, I'm looking forward to this month and hearing everybody's uh, different content. I, I think it's going to be really interesting seeing how different people handle the month of content about the OSR uh, and without there being any sort of centralized planning behind it. It'll be, be pretty cool, I think. I think there'll be a lot of overlap, which will be funny to see in, in retrospect. Um, sign off for a suggestion for you. Defend the keep. I don't know. Just came to mind whenever you said it. Maybe it's corny if you say it too much, but defend the keep. Yeah, I like it. Use that. All right. Keep up the great work. Look forward to the rest of the month and defend the keep. Hey, Daniel, it's Rob from Down in a Heap. Just listened to your episode on OSR October, and thanks for joining in. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate all your episodes, but uh, it's cool that you're joining in this little kooky project. Uh, I really liked the ideas that you had and the um, you know, just explaining how you came to it and uh, and how you see it developing and what it is and what it means to you. And definitely DIY spirit is runs deep in the movement. And as you point out in a lot of D and D stuff, but uh, how about this for a sign off? Um, Thanks for listening to bandits keep where the drawbridge is always open. I don't know where the portcullis is always up. You seem to be a pretty open generous kind of bandit lord so maybe that works see ya thanks uh kevin and rob for those suggestions uh defend the keep where the drawbridge is always open maybe i'll uh combine them so we're getting something there but yes i'm really looking forward to everybody's continued efforts on osr october obviously it is the eighth so i've heard a bunch already i am listening out of order and in weird orders uh, because my podcast listening schedule has gotten really weird, but it's just awesome. So many people that are getting involved in this and uh, yeah, I think a lot of people are going to come to similar things, but through different paths. And I mean, maybe that is what the OSR is. Okay. So the next few messages are going to be from Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Everything's a little out of order here because I waited too long to reply to messages. Number one and number two, because I've been taking now some calls call-ins or messages, if you will, through Discord, which might be my preferred way, to be honest with you. It's a little bit easier for me on some level. So if you have not joined my Discord server, please do. It's in the link in the description. Or if you're on Audio Dungeon Discord or Clericsware Ringmail Discord, I'm on there. You can reach out to me there. Just send me a message uh, with a voicemail attached, and I can just upload it here. It might just be easier for me. But of course, the link to the Anchor call-in page works as a Taylor noted. So hopefully that continues to work <laughs> and uh, we'll go from there. But uh, uh, get ready, grab a hot coffee and uh, let's listen to what Jason has to say. Hey, Daniel, Jason here. So your last couple videos about NPCs and about traps, really good, really enjoying them. And I'm also really enjoying your Discord and all the interaction on there. I do recommend that watchers and listeners check that out. But as far as NPCs, I do kind of like you. If they're a major NPC, they're part of the storyline. Of course, they'll be pre-generated. But if not, then I just keep a list of names, you know, by gender. They're appropriate to the setting. I keep a list of tra traits. And I keep a list of famous people of various genders. And what I'll do is 
if they come across a random person in the street or approach a random person in the bar or whatever, I will roll on those three things to get their name, to get a trait, to make them stand out a little bit, something I can play with. And I'll also roll up a famous person, and then I'll use that famous person in the way I portray that character. And then I'll, I'll write each of those things. I have a cheat sheet that I have there with me, and I may have a blank one, you know. And I'll write down, you know, like bar patron is, and I'll write the name, the trait, and the famous person. And that way, when they come back to that famous or come back to that NPC, I because I see that tag, those tags there, that reminds me, oh yeah, I'm playing them like this. And and that way, I can be a little bit consistent in how I portray those NPCs if they come back to them later on. So that's what I do for that. As far as traps, yeah, it, it's tricky, right? And riddles are tricky. And, you know, I know this has been brought up in the Discord, on your Discord as well. You know, how long do you let them sit on traps? How do you, how long do you let them go before you give them the answer? It, it, traps can be tough. I, I think what you laid out on the pot, on the YouTube show makes a lot of sense. I think the idea of having the answer in the room is really smart. And don't make them hard. You, you know, because you think it's easy, it's going to be hard to the players. So you want something you think is way easy. <laughs> <laughs> if that makes sense, um, because when we as a DM think we're being clever, we're being super duper clever and make it really hard on the players. And when we think we give them an easy clue, we're giving them at least a medium clue usually. So don't don't overestimate, because like you said, the only information the players have is what you tell. I got cut off because the alarm on my phone that I was recording on and went off. <laughs> Time to take my medicine. But I was saying the only information the players have is what you tell them. So, and when we create these riddles, we have a lot more in our mind and we can create problems. You know, we have the entire context where the players don't. So, you know, don't start off with really easy things. Um, and a lot of times in the book, sometimes they're really easy and sometimes they're really, really hard. <laughs> so, but the riddle books are interesting. I may check those out. Thank you for all that you do, Daniel. Really appreciate it. I look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks, Jason. Uh, yeah, I think this is a great community here with Anchor and the various discords I'm part of with uh, Audio Dungeon and Clerics Wear Ringmail and the others that I'm part of, my own, of course. Uh, and yeah, just some great people. As far as NPCs, I like that idea of having the actor or the character name in your head as far as not their name, but their attitudes. I like the idea of having a list of names ahead of time. I don't usually do that, but I probably should. As far as like the personality, though, I usually just go with the flow and then I make notes after so it's consistent, which is basically what you're doing there. And so far as riddles and stuff, I love riddles. I love moving things around. I love bringing players out of the immersion of the game and just like all of a sudden we're playing checkers or something. I like that kind of stuff. And if you have a group that does, which I do, then that's super fun to do. But you do need to make it, you know, so that it's solvable. <laughs> and sometimes you want to use checks. As well, you know, that that's kind of one thing I'll do. If there's a riddle, I might say something like, I might put obvious things in the room, hoping the players will figure it out. But if they don't, then it's like they can make a check. Oh, you know, you, I can check my history or my arcana or whatever skill you might have in, in the game. And then I might give them some kind of a hint. But I almost feel like hints are sometimes worse than the riddles themselves. When I, Like that riddle book that I talk about in the, the thing, like when I look at some of the hints, it, it throws me off the wrong way. I'm like, what? <laughs> so I'm not sure. Maybe you got to make sure your hints are also good as as far as your riddle, your riddling goes. The riddle has to be simple enough to solve with good uh, hints there for them to find, but the hints have to be obvious. Hey, Daniel, Jason here. Day four, 
anything to help lowly fighter is always a good thing. I, I like the idea of also increasing the number of creatures they can attack, you know, one hit die creatures they can attack equal to their level and as they go up in level. So maybe a fifth level fighter can attack for one and two hit die creatures as many, you know, up to five times. And a 10th level can hit one, two, and three hit die creatures is, you know, 10 times or whatever, right? So, so I like that idea, but maybe not drop them down to that first level swinginess because I, I don't know if that's needed. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's something to play around with. Rob Conley over Bat in the Attic Games has a deal where I forget the exact progression, but it, you know, where that pro- progresses up to make them more effective. Or, you know, you can just use Chainmail and not worry about any of this because Chainmail fixes all these problems, you know, without modification. Yeah, I agree that Chainmail pretty much solves that problem, right? Clearly. Uh, and that's really what I got it from because fighters always fight as the number of, quote, men equal to their level for the most part. So I just said, well, fighters will get that advantage that you get from Chainmail, but nobody else will. You know, just when I want to run a quick pickup game or something, it works all right if you don't want to make a huge change to your game. I do like the uh, the idea of the progression, though. You know, at low levels, just against first level, at higher levels against second, at higher levels against third. That's kind of what Hyperborea does, although I think it only ever goes to second. But what they do is they just double the number of attacks the fighter gets. They don't get it per level, so which is still pretty darn powerful because you, if you're a first-level fighter with a specialized weapon in Hyperborea, you're making three attacks around against first-level uh, enemies, which means... You are darn tough. So Hyperborea does a decent job at making the standard fighter pretty tough as well. Hey, Daniel, Jason here. I don't want to call you too much, but this is a great pull. Um, it's a great example of a, you know, one of these older modules. And, and like you say, you can get the two versions and kind of see that, which is interesting. But yeah, hi, highly recommend it. I got to play through part of it with Shandy Andy, whose podcast been a highest for a long time on Garter Treasure B-52. But, um, yeah, it, it's a really interesting module, and definitely there's things, you know, writers can learn from that and look at that, and, you know, module designers and GMs can learn. So check it out. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Jason. Uh, I believe, I'm 99% sure he's talking about the OSR October, I don't remember which one it was, but the which day it was, but the one about Palace of the Silver Princess Definitely check that out if you have not played it. It is a great module, both the orange version and the green one. So uh, thanks, Jason. And also, you can never call in too much. It will take me forever to actually respond to them, but I do love to get calls from everybody. So thanks, everyone. Hey, Daniel. Kevin calling in from the Red Caps podcast. Knock Magazine. Fantastic choice, my friend. Um, I also own all three. Uh, They are a fantastic example of the DIY slash blog culture that is and, and was around the OSR. Um, yeah, there'll be a new one, I suspect, by by the end of the month. There'll be a Kickstarter for issue four. And if you're not aware, the Mary Mushman had a Kickstarter for a bestery recently. Uh, I kickstarted it. I don't think it's actually completed just yet. Or no, it's completed, but hasn't been shipped out yet or something like that. Um, but yeah, to keep an eye out for that when it comes out. And if anybody's looking to get the magazines, they can be difficult to get. Um, but if you back the Kickstarter for, say, issue four, they generally have reprints of, of previous issues as well. So um, I know issue one, though, seems to be very difficult to find. I hear a lot of people looking for it. But yes, great example. Get the PDFs at the very least. They are fantastic. Take care. 
Hey, Daniel, Kevin calling in from the Red Caps podcast. Just wanted to say thank you for the giggle that I got at the end of uh, not today's episode, yesterday's episode, uh, when you're like, I'm an old school DM. I don't present solutions. I just give a problem. You go figure it out. I laughed. It's absolutely the truth, but it was just hilarious the context you put it in. Um, don't really have anything else to say. I just thought that was really funny and wanted to say thank you for the chuckle. Anyhow, take care. Hey, Daniel, Kevin calling in from the Red Caps podcast. Small correction on your retro clone episode. I'm only partway through it, so you may change yourself around here anyhow. Um, I believe Castles and Crusades would probably be considered the first, like, retro-ish clone. But um, of the era that we're actually talking about, the very first one would have been Basic Fantasy RPG. Um, It beat out Ozark by a couple of months um, on its release. Ozark came out second, um, and then Labyrinth Lord and Sword and Wizardry. Um talking with Chris Gonnerman uh, the other day and he was saying that they also used the term retro clone then but it was kind of heavily not liked on the Dragon's Foot forums and eventually trying to find a new name is how OSR came about. Um, I'm also going to talk to to Matt Finch later this month um, and as well as Dan Proctor so kind of getting the the full gambit of, of those original creators uh, onto the Red Caps podcast but it'll be interesting to hear their thoughts on it. Uh, anyway back to your episode I'm going to call all right, I'm back for part two. I just finished listening to the episode. I agree with what you were saying. Um, just additional rule sets that are just more clones of what we already have is probably not going to be overly useful to most people and is going to be a heartbreaker. Um, I have a rule that I'm not buying any more rule sets. Of course, it's a rule I break all the time. Just today I bought Index Card RPG Master Edition or whatever it's called. Um, yeah, I can't hold to my own rules. But um, what I do think people should be making is more settings and more adventures. And if you want to have small house rules or small tweaks to a core set of rules, put them in the adventures and put them in the in the settings. Give me cool places to draw inspiration from or cool adventures that I can already plop ready-made into the worlds that I have. Um, that's what I'm looking for to the OSR now, really. Uh, that's that's the sort of product that I'll, I'll kickstart and back. Um, everything else feels like I've already got what I need. And maybe that's the originals. Maybe it's the retro clones, but great episode. Hey, Kevin, thanks for your calls. Always appreciate them. Um, yeah, I think yeah, Knock Magazine is really great. And I was lucky enough that when they kickstarted number two, I think is when I grabbed number one in print. And then when I did three, I actually got two copies because I had a friend that just loved number one so much that uh, they that I ordered two of number three for them. Anyways, um, as far as the retro clones, that's awesome. Great information. I didn't realize that Basic Fantasy had come out before Osric, but I'm also pretty sure that Castles and Crusades, in fact, I'm more sure about that, is not based on TSR-style D&D. It's got its own little deal going on, and I believe it is 3rd edition-based, just like DCC. So that's why I didn't really mention those, but I did not realize that Basic Fantasy came out first. That's really cool. And for people who don't know Basic Fantasy RPG, it is an amazing resource. It's like many of these games has a free version and the print versions are very inexpensive on uh, Amazon. You can pretty much get, I've seen people talk about this a lot, and usually people jumping over to the OSR, that's like one of the ones that people recommend because you can get your group that's playing whatever other game in effectively for free or for maybe like 20 bucks. You can buy like almost every book in the line from Amazon. So it's really great. Um, Basic Fantasy is awesome. And also, if you didn't catch that from what he was saying there, Kevin's been doing interviews with all kinds of great people this month for OSR October. So uh, again, there's a link to Red Caps in the show notes. So you can jump over there and catch up on those interviews because 
They're really great. It's awesome to hear from people who were kind of dipping their toes in the water in the beginning, right? To see like how they did it, what they were thinking and also the kind of stuff. Um, insofar as what you're saying, I agree. I think, and I'm not going to name a product because I don't want to seem like I'm being negative towards anybody, but maybe three, four years ago, I got a, it was like the tipping point for me where I got a, a back to rule, a rule set that was supposed to be this grim dark rule set. And what it effectively was, was a maybe a half dozen or maybe eight uh, character classes that uh, seemed grim darky, I guess, but they were basically just re reimaginings of classes that already existed in the OSR. And then the rest of the book, the spells, the weapons, the monsters, they were all exactly the same as BX or OD&D or whatever. And I thought to myself, why wouldn't you have just put out a small supplement that was just these character classes and then maybe some rules on how to play this grimdark vibe instead of spending, you know, three quarters of the book printing out material I already have. So that's when that started for me, although like you, I can't stick to my own thing and I keep buying more and more rule sets. So. Hey, Daniel, the Pink Phantom here. I was listening to your episode about why retro clones? Why do we keep making retro clones? And it got me to thinking that that, that question and the idea of making more retro clones versus just making games that go more into what we want from the from old school style play is kind of at the root of, you know, the whole question that keeps coming up. Two things that keep coming up. The question, what is the OSR? And is the OSR dead or the OSR should, or the, maybe the statement the OSR should be dead. And, you know, movements like the NSR or new SR. And I think we've seen that throughout, you know, the, the length of the OSR with the rise of games like dungeon world and DCC and Nave and Troika. And so I, I really think you got to kind of the heart of things with that idea. Uh, that's a great job. Hey man, I got a, I got a sign off for you. Um, it's it's this. I'm Bandit Keith, and this is the Bandit Beep. All right, so that was the Pink Phantom there, and uh, Josh Allen with another good sign off. Uh, yeah, you know, you're right again. Now that I'm thinking, because also with the uh, Kevin Collin with the Red Caps, right? Thinking about some other things that weren't exactly retro clones, things like DCC, uh, and of course, like you say, Nave, uh, Maze Rats. Of course, before that, yeah, Nave. Maze Rats came before that. Also, um, Troika, right? Looking into like, uh, what was that? Fighting Fantasy kind of style. All of these are not just strictly retro clones of the TSR. Some of them are their own kind of vibe. And some are seem very fresh, especially to people. Like, I never played Fighting Fantasy books. So to me, something like uh, Troika is completely new. Hey, Daniel. Kevin calling in from the Red Caps podcast. I just listened to your episode about the blog that was showing you this really cool hex map of the Kingmaker uh, Adventure Path. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you're a Mac person, so I'm not sure if this game is available on the Mac or not, but there is a PC game, uh, Pathfinder, uh, that plays through that Kingmaker Adventure Path. Um, so if you're ever interested in it, you don't really want to dive into trying to organize a tabletop game for it. The, From what I'm told, the PC um, RPG a computer RPG is a faithful recreation of the Kingmaker scenario as it is written in the Adventure Path. Um, I agree with you that blogs were the cornerstone of the OSR for a very long time. Uh, before them, forums like Dragon's Foot and after the blogs, or even coinciding with the blogs, would be G+. 
And I kind of feel that in our modern times, um, we've gotten away from the blogs a little bit. I don't, I'm not sure if it's because we don't have the same, people aren't using RSS readers to keep on, up on blogs, or if there isn't the whole you know, sh- uh, blog tree lists or the blog link back systems that there used to be before. Um, but now everything's kind of gone over to Reddit or um, different social media. But it really feels like most of the OSR now has become less of a sharing and collaboration uh, the way it was on the blogs and the G+, and has now become more of a commercialization of it where it's all on Kickstarters and HIO and, and what have you. Maybe I'm being, being jaded there, I don't know. But that's it, it kind of feels like we've gone through the different phases of it, and the phase that we're in now is more of, an, uh, more of a commercialization of it, which is not a bad thing, that's a good thing. It keeps, keeps the blood flowing, but it's different. But overall, I just wanted to say great job so far on OSR October. I've really enjoyed all the episodes you've put out. And I will stop spamming your messages now for this evening anyway, because um, I know you want to do that calling bonanza, and I don't need to hear my voice on it that many times. But yeah, great job. Um, and I'm going to now go back and read some more of this Against the Wicked City blog that you've linked to. So have a fantastic night, and I will talk to you again soon. Yes, it is true. Sadly, I am a Macintosh user, so <laughs> for many, many years, so I do not have a PC to play that game, although I'm sure there's ways around that. That sounds really cool, actually. I love the idea of the D&D video game that actually uses, I say D&D as a, as a wide stroke, right? Because obviously Pathfinder is very similar uh, in process to 3.5, so it's D&D-ish. And I love the idea of a D&D type of video game or a Pathfinder video game that uses like the actual stories from the world, from the the company, and I'm assuming also mechanics, because that's very cool for the DM, right? Because <laughs> you get to play through and, and experience it one way, but then this it allows you to play through and enjoy it as a character. So that's super cool. I'll definitely check that out. Yeah, I don't disagree with you on the fact the OSR has really changed. It's become a little bit more... I guess you could say commercialized, mostly because I think the resources to sell the stuff is out there. I don't think that uh, people weren't trying to sell stuff before, and I think people do still create blogs. What I found in my kind of transformation from like reading the blogs to moving over to Google Plus is also where Patreon became a thing, right? Like I followed several people on Patreon who are OSR creators, still do, who create maps, who create adventures, who create art. And stuff like that. That's kind of, uh, and again, I don't think that's new, but that's another place where it is. You could say that's also on some level uh, commercialized. But I think maybe that Patreon style has replaced some of the blogs anyways. Though not all of them, because clearly people still blog. I find myself reading fewer and fewer blogs now. It's probably because I listen to more podcasts and look at more YouTube channels. And I think that technology makes a huge difference here. Technology is allowing us to create these podcasts really simply and effectively for free. So is the Anchor Podcast the new blog? Maybe. Uh, in any case, uh, I always like to hear your voice here, so I appreciate you calling in. And uh, yeah, let's uh, let's jump over. I have a message, I haven't listened to it yet, uh, from Joe Richter about Kingmaker. So I'm excited to see what he has to say. Yo, Daniel, dude, thank you for sharing that blog with me, with all of us. That sounds absolutely amazing. I love that idea. Uh, it's that's just so super cool. It makes me really want to read Wrath just to kind of get a good like overview. Again, Jason, <laughs> don't read it. 
Uh, and the fact that when you were going through the list, I was like, is he going to have Carrion Crown? Is he going to have Carrion Crown? And then you read Carrion Crown at the end, and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> so thank you, man. I, I love that idea. That's very cool. I've never played Kingmaker. I've never read it either. Uh, but I know enough about it. Like, hopefully that, I'm sure it does. I haven't had a chance to read this guy's, uh, what he did. I'm sure it has stuff about domain play in there. If not, it really should, because that whole adventure path is all about domain play, um, and building up your domain and everything. So hopefully that's in there. Excuse me. But that was just awesome, man. Thank you for that. And yeah, I will talk to you later, dude. Peace out. Thanks, Joe. Um, yeah, it's really cool. I, I'm curious if you get a chance to look at any of them for adventure paths that you've run, because I would be curious what the translation is. You know, when I look at it, like I said, it's pretty cool. It's like, oh, here they took this large thing that obviously is full of all kinds of amazing detail for a GM, but condensed it down. So if you want to run it more kind of uh, on the fly, kind of OSR style, if you will, as I air quote, <laughs> and I wanted to see how good of a job they did. I guess I'll look back to see if it has any domain stuff. Um, I don't know that it really does as far as specifically written down. So maybe there you go. That's a good um, a good point, right? If you want to truly express as much information as possible to the person playing the adventure, whether it be an adventure path or a module or a series of modules, it does take words, right? <laughs> so it's simple enough to say, well, OSR, you know, we got two pages of, of bullet points and and, uh, you know, on a map and you can run it and it's true. You could run it and it will be very different from very, from other people, but you might not get all the flavor. So I am curious if you get a chance to check out those ones, uh, any of them, and, uh, let me know if what you think of them, uh, cause I'd be curious. Uh, and I'll tell you what, just looking at the hex crawl definitely makes me want to look at some of these adventure paths just to kind of see what detail is there, like what kind of amazing stories they tell that would have been different if I just ran enough X crawl, right? <laughs> so that's pretty awesome. I do have another message from Joe, so let's hear that one. Yo, what up, Daniel? Been a while, man, but I just want to say I'm loving what you're doing for OSR October. I really enjoyed your latest uh, day seven, the minor magical items list. That those were those were really cool <laughs> items. Uh, yeah, that's that was just fun, man. I just wanted to say I thought it was fun. Also, you mentioned that it was 70 degrees where you are in October, which is like where it is and I where I am. And you were wondering why mosquitoes were out because they're not normally out at this time of year. And it's because it's 70 degrees, <laughs> which is why it shouldn't be 70 degrees in October, man. I hate it. There are spider webs all over the place where I live and I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like walking through spider webs. I want it to get cold. I want the spiders to go away. I want the mosquitoes to go away. And I want it to be cold. Anyway, dude, awesome stuff. I'll talk to you soon. Peace out. Yeah, I'm with you on that, Joe, for sure. I I do like when the weather gets a little bit chilly, just enough so we don't get bothered by the bugs. Can wear a nice uh, sweater or sweatshirt, maybe sit by the fire even at night. Uh, And uh, yeah, I don't really love when we get tons of snow, but I don't think you probably get much snow where you are maybe rain, um, but we get snow over here. So the fall is always really sweet. The spring is always really sweet. The dead of the winter. Well, I guess that's when I'll be playing a lot more games online because I won't want to step outside. (laughs) Hey, Daniel, it's Rob from Down in a Heap. Great choice with black pudding as uh, something to discuss for OSR October. Um, My group used that uh, JVS retro clone in it 
uh, for the kind of the basis for our Whisper Tales of Gore game. And uh, yeah, it's one of those things I just love paging through. I like I like the art a lot and uh, some of the crazy NPCs, and it just has a lot of inspirational stuff in there. I also really liked your fighter episode. It's cool when you come up with ideas that are already within the game to use as just kind of uh, um, something to change up a class. So using the monster to hit rolls uh, for fighters. Good stuff. See ya. That was Rob from Down in a Heap, of course. And uh, that's pretty cool that you're using the Black Pudding system for your... uh for your whispered tales that you're playing in. Uh, now, I'm curious, <laughs> so maybe we'll hear back from you. Are you using the, uh, how do you wake up naked rules like I was talking about, and do you use the weird classes? Uh, because I'm curious how some of them play out. I've used a few and they're really fun, but not for a campaign, so very, very cool. And yes, I, I agree that I think that the, the best, not that what I did was the best, but I think the best house rules that I come up with are the ones that I'm actually looking at the system and just going, oh, I could just use that for this, as opposed to just making it up whole cloth. They seem to fit a lot better when you do that. Hey, Daniel, Direct Sun here. I wanted to let you know what the OSR means to me. Uh, when I first got started with the OSR, I was playing Stonehell in the OSR pickup game server. I was having a lot of fun. I was also playing in a separate 5e game. I remember we're all high-level characters in the 5e game and we're fighting this big old big bad from hell and we were in their complex we we're in their lair and uh, there were a couple of different passages one of the passages was, was blocked by this big old pit uh, blocked the whole hallway and it wasn't even that deep it was like 30 or 40 feet deep uh, and I could tell that the referee wanted us to, to use some spells to get over this, to expend our resources, and I can appreciate that as a resource management game. And I had been playing a lot of OSR-style games where, you know, we didn't have those resources, so I said, well, if we play this smart, we won't have to use up any spells. We need everything so we can go supernova on this big bed. So, you know, I suggested using a rope. I suggested using some bits of wood that we had found along the way, We'll come back, we'll rip apart these ballistas, and we'll lay some planks along over top this pit so we can walk across, we'll do all these other things. And everything I suggested, you know, got shot down. Said, nah, it doesn't work. Uh, the ballista breaks apart into a million pieces. It's shattered. The pieces aren't big enough for you to string across. Uh, the rope doesn't go, you know, far enough. You can't, you can't connect it together with anything. Uh, you don't know how to tie it. And... That was really frustrating uh, to me. Um, and, you know, from that I kind of realized what kind of games I, I wanted to play, what kind of games I had fun with, the ones where I thought creatively about my environment and my character and what I could use, and not really, like, looking at spells in my character sheet and figuring out what to do there, uh, you know, which, which box to check off. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense to everyone, but it makes sense to me uh, of what I like about the OSR and what it means to me. Um, and I have a sign-up for you. Uh, first experimented in the podcast Between Two Cairns uh, with Brad Kerr and Yochai Gal. Uh, 
So th this sign off was experimented, but I don't think they're going to keep it. So uh, you should you should definitely use this sign off. Here it is. I love you. There you go. So everyone listening to the podcast, they have a great day at the end there. They know that someone cares about them and cares that they're listening to them. And they'll go off and start their day right or end their day right. So you have, you have a sign-off for the, the hat for you to consider. All right, take care. Get Daniel and uh, happy OSR October. That's awesome, man. Thanks for sharing. You know, I think that this type of play, this kind of like using your your player skill, I'll call it. I know that some people don't like that term, is what a lot of people would put as a hallmark of the old school way of playing or OSR way. But I wonder too, if that just comes down to playing a little bit like that, right? And then going back. Cause I know that like when I've been in 5e games by people who also play a lot of other games, that they are very open to the things you're saying. And I know that in the past when we've had conversations with, for instance, Joe Richter, who called earlier in his Pathfinder games, he's really great about having the, the player characters come up with, or the players come up with, you know, and use ideas and stuff that just aren't on their character sheet. So I wonder if that just comes down to playing a little bit that way. And maybe because many of the OSR blogs and uh, advice people talk about that, Whereas when I look online and I look at advice people for, let's say, 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, I don't look at advice people for Pathfinder, so I can't say. They're mostly talking about character builds and that kind of stuff. Now, if there are people out there that talk about this kind of stuff for 5th edition, I would love for somebody to call in and let me know. But I just think that that's what it comes down to, right? They're, they're, it's not that the game system doesn't allow for it. It's just that the Dungeon Masters are being for lack of a better word, taught to play a different way. So I wonder if somebody were to make something like how they have that, uh, like Matt Finch did that uh, OSR, I can't think what the name of it is now, but the pamphlet that he did that uh, tell you know kind of has this, the ideas of how you play an old school game. I wonder if somebody made one of those, but changed it around to, uh, to talk about things that are actually in some of the more modern games and said, here's a way where you can play the game a little bit differently instead of trying to make a, make a divide maybe share this way of playing because some people might like it a lot. So that's great. I mean, I'm happy that you're over here playing the OSR games, but I, I often wonder if uh, if it just comes down to how a DM plays, you know, because I've certainly also heard stories of people playing in first edition Dungeons & Dragons, second edition, where the DM's just like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> so I think that might be a play style thing. And maybe, that's, maybe that should be a project. Some people that feel very strongly about OSR style of play could write something that could be a, an advice pamphlet to give out to new DMs that are playing not OSR games, not games that would be considered OSR and see if they like that style and if that style could work for their table. And I guess with that, I'm going to tell a little story <laughs> as usual. So when I was running my big fifth edition campaign, we were, they were fairly high level. They were like maybe seventh, eighth levels. We've been playing for a while and something happened. <laughs> Uh, there was a major craziness where effectively there was a kobold skyship that the party dropped from the sky and on themselves. So it really probably should have been a TPK based on all that. But I, I told them at the end, they all went down and I said, let's talk about it next session. Cause I really, I don't know what to say right now. I don't know if we should roll up new characters to start over, which we should do. And 
I went back and I picked up one of the few books besides the 5th edition stuff that I had at that point, and it was the 1st edition Dungeon Master's Guide. And I looked at it, and I read a section in there where Gary Gygax is talking about the idea that the player characters are heroes, and that sometimes a situation that doesn't make any sense, I think the example he uses is, if you're chained to a rock and a dragon breathes fire on you, you know, should you get a saving throw? I mean, in a sense is, no, you shouldn't, right? You should just be dead. But the player characters get a saving throw because they're special. And maybe he doesn't say it exactly like that, but that's basically what he says. So I went back to the group and I said, I'm going to give everybody a saving throw. And if you make this saving throw, you will simply be unconscious and you'll have to make death saves. If you fail the saving throw, you're straight up dead. And as it worked out, everybody made the saving throw, which was really great. And then they still had to make death saves, but it, it, not to tell the whole story here, but basically the druid rolled a natural 20 on their death save, got up and had, I think, healing word or one of those healing things and was able to actually stabilize and heal everybody really quickly. So the party, none of them, well, one person died, but that was from a because their brain has been sucked out earlier in the encounter. But the point being is that it was this mentality, this old school mentality, if you want to call it that. It was words of Gary Gygax that told me to run my game a little differently than the rules that were written in the book suggested I should. So I think mixing up different styles of play can be very beneficial. And I know there's a whole bunch of grogdons out there screaming at the podcast right now going, no, those people are snowflakes and you let them live. Well, pick up your DMG and read it, my friend. Okay, thank you for sticking with me so long. We are, whoosh, we're going to definitely pass an hour here. I've got, I think, three or four more messages. They are all from Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I will play these messages and respond to them. And that will be the end of this call in Bonanza. And I have learned my lesson to answer calls as they come in. And hopefully we'll have a lot more calls coming in for us in October. I'm really enjoying everybody's shows. You can... Uh, of course, check out their shows in the, in the show notes below, but I'll, I'll do a closer after that. But let's hear Jason. Hey, Daniel, Jason here. So for the history of the OSR, the written archives are still available. If you go to the Knights and Knaves, Ale House, Forum, OD&D 74, Dragon's Foot, but primarily Knights and Knaves, Ale House, you can find the de developmental threat. I can't even talk. The threads where they talk about the development of Osric, because that's where it was built, right? You can follow them doing it. Osric was designed to allow people to publish AD&D compatible adventures. It wasn't a replacement rule set. It was made to allow people to publish adventures. It was to test the waters to give them something because people were worried they couldn't publish this adventure's compatible with AD&D first edition, right? They're worried about Watsy smacking their their hands, where with Osric, they could publish an adventure saying this is compatible with Osric. So that was the original need for that. There's an interesting essay that um, is been written. Um, I'll send you a link to it. But where it talks about where Osric failed was the, it didn't have a face man. So originally, you had Matt Finch, right? And then Matt Finch's love kind of was more towards the OD&D thing, and he did Swords and Wizardry. But when we think of the retro clones that are memorable, for the most part, they have a figure associated with them. You know, if and, and this is my words. These are from this essay that you can get to from Knights and Nails Alehouse. But if you think of 
Swords and Wizardry, if you think of OSE, if you think of Labyrinth Lord, if you think of, you know, any of these clones, you think of a personality in charge doing it, whether it's Matt Finch, Dan Proctor, Gavin Norman, right? Where Osric doesn't really have that because Matt Finch was that for a while. He was one of the development, develop, you know, the big guys in it. And then there are, of course, a lot of other people involved. But, you know, I was around at least by 2007, not involved in this myself. You know, I didn't have any hands in it, but with G Plus kind of following it and to some degree and on these forums following it. And we lost a lot when we lost G Plus, Google Plus. Um, but a lot of the history is still there. People want to take the time to get on the Knights and Knaves Ale House and these older forum and these web forums and read through these old posts that go back to the earliest days. I mean, they go back to, you know, 2006, you know, to what, 2008. You can, you can read these threads of the development of all this stuff. So the history is there. It just takes a little bit of, you know, effort to go back and read them. But hopefully that maybe helps a little bit. I don't know how useful it is to say this came out and then this came out and this came out. Um, other people may com come and give you all that timetable history thing. And a lot of people say it starts more with castles and crusades than anything. So I don't know. But yeah, Osric was originally just a published adventure, AD&D compatible ventures. What was the original intent of Osric? But yeah, all that, like say, go to these web forums which are why web forums are so cool and it sucks so bad that everything's gone to Discord and the other social medias that, you know, that really have no memory. So anyway, that's my kind of um, not really high-pumped commentary, but I think you're doing a great job. I think you bring up some interesting questions, and I definitely think you bring up some good things for people to think about that are looking to publish new rule sets today. So thank you for all you're doing, Daniel. I do appreciate it, and I look forward to your next episode. Thanks, Jason. Uh, always great to hear from you. You know, I, I get what you're saying with Osric, and many people, in fact, Spencer sent me a, uh, a, a podcast where they talk about the, the history, although they made a statement, which I thought was kind of interesting in the podcast, that was everything that's not 5e is OSR, which I think is completely off base, but maybe that's an entire different podcast. But um, I get that I get that Osric wasn't designed originally to be a rule set that people should play, but I'm just, I still haven't got a confirmation from anybody. I don't think whether or not AD&D was still in print. I don't think it was. So I still stick by what I said. It was something that was needed at the time. There was no physical way to legally buy AD&D unless you were getting it on the used market. So if they were making modules for AD&D using the Osric set, there needed to be a rule set for them to use. And when I first got the, one of the very first games I played, when I got back into playing, I played online. I joined the AD&D campaign, uh, Temple of Elemental Evil. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm looking on eBay for a good deal on a, a player's handbook. And the, the, all the players were like, oh, no, we just use this Osric. You should buy this book or at the very least get the PDF because it's free. And uh, I, because of nostalgia, I still went out and bought the player's handbook because I really wanted it. But uh, I, I think it's interesting. And the point that you make about the face is really also super interesting. I think that uh, when we think of like some of the most successful products we can think of, right? There is usually somebody there because I mean, games are products, right? There's usually somebody there that we can think of that's kind of leading the way. So yeah, I'm curious what would have happened with Osric had they been more of a, a focused marketing for it as a system, because it's certainly pretty cool. And I mean, people who want to play AD&D, uh, you know, this is a great system where it's uh, got a different organization and, and uh, it's all in one book, et cetera. So that's all good. 
And I've seen a few Osric related products that are really nice, like Monstro books and stuff that I've picked up in the past. So I think it's definitely a, uh, a worthwhile thing to have. I only have the PDF. I never ended up buying it because it didn't have the two things that I like the most in AD&D, Bards and Psionics. Hey, Daniel. Great episode on Swords and Wizardry and Monstrosities. It is a great book. Um, I think the only place you can get print copies at the moment is Amazon. Looking around, Frog Guy Games is out of it, and Matt Finch no longer works the Frog Guy Games, so I don't think Frog God is selling the Sword of Wizardry stuff that they don't have in stock anymore. Matt Finch has set up a separate store to sell his stuff. Um, but, like I say, Amazon does have some copies of Monstrosities in stock. I don't see it on Matt Finch's site, so it might be a book if you don't grab now, you won't have a chance to grab. So, I, I wouldn't wait too long. Although the PDF is still available, I think, on Sword and Wizardry's site. Anyhow, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Hey, Daniel, Jason here. Great episode on CL Moore. I, I can't agree with you more. Wonderful, wonderful author. Well worth checking out. A good podcast, if you want to hear about some other things that aren't in Appendix N, is from March 11th of 2021 on Minions and Musings. It's called, It's Time to Move Past Appendix N. Ray Otis joins Evil Jeff, and they talk about books that aren't in Appendix N, specifically about the Mulvey Cook version of Appendix N that you referenced. So go check that out. Again, Minions and Musings, March 11th, 2021. It's time to move past Appendix N. Um, great podcast. Keep up the great work yourself. Talk to you soon. Uh, that's cool that Amazon has monstrosities. Uh, I will look for it there. I put a link here. I'll also put a link. I'll go back to that old episode and put a link to Amazon if I can find it there. So if people want to pick it up there, that's awesome. Yeah, that makes sense to they're probably not going to refresh the print ones on on uh, Frog God for those reasons. Also, thanks for pointing out that episode of Minions and Musings. I will try to dig that up. I'm terrible at links, but I will find the links to that and I'll put it uh, in the show notes here so people can listen to it. Otherwise, Jason gave you the date there, uh, March 11th, uh, 2021. So I will try to locate it and just put a link to make it easier for everybody. Hey, Daniel, Jason here. Great episode, or episode video on undead that you put up on YouTube. Um, yeah, I, I think level drain is an important aspect and yeah, it's a pain in the butt and it's something you need to establish at the beginning for players. So they know to write down, basically make a new character sheet each time, which is a lot easier these days. We have electronics and do character sheets on PDFs, fillable PDFs or whatever. So you just save first level, you know, Jason's fight or first level. Jason's fight or second level. That way, when you hit with level drain, it's a lot easier than the old days and you're like trying to figure out what, what you lose and all that. But I think that fear is, is important. And I think it's important in the game. And it it's built into the game for a reason, you, you know. But I think your comments about scaling the treasure to make them worthwhile challenges is important because otherwise undead areas just become no-go no zones where people avoid. That's a really good point. I think if you're going to use level draining undead or any kind of thing that's a major issue, curses, things like that, you got to give people a reason to go. Otherwise, they just will avoid it, right? And you don't want to railroad them in while you have no choice but to go through this zone where you could get level drained. You want to put something there to tempt the players. You know, my favorite kind of cursed item is the kind that the players don't want to give up once they can. You know, it's like, well, you know, this cursed item sucks because it does this, but at the same time, Wow, it's a really nice item to have. 
And to me, that's the same thing with the level draining undead. You want to make it so that the player characters want to get to where the undead are blocking or something they're protecting, but they've got to risk it. And in almost every case that I can think of with the level draining undead, there's ways to beat them without actually getting level drained. You just got to stay away, right? As long as they're level appropriate, obviously. I mean, I know that uh, uh, I know it's OSR and I'm not supposed to talk about balance, but you know, if you start throwing specters at a second level party, clearly they're not going to be able to do anything. I mean, unless you give them lots of uh, lots of magic items, I guess. Uh, but if you throw a specter at an appropriately leveled party, they'll have ways to fight the specter. And I think that's something we have to keep in mind when we're doing this. Also, I'll just point out, because this is a common argument about this. Uh, this has been discussed many times before. But if you look at the way level progression works, especially in old school games, because of the nature of gold for treasure, if somebody gets level drained one level, they will quickly catch up. They will always be behind the party, but they're only only really going to be behind the party by like half a level when it comes down to it because everybody's getting the same treasure. They don't need as much to advance and they can kind of move forward. So I don't think it's as bad as people think it is, but man, does it suck. And I mean, I've had it happen to me as well. Some options are giving them a saving throw uh, to avoid it, but I don't think that's that fulfilling either. That's like giving the magic user one extra spell. I think that's just a temporary bandage. It doesn't really work. What if they fail the saving throw? They still get level drained. Do they feel like that was worth it? The one thing I will say that what I generally do, and I don't think I say this in the video, is when somebody level drains you, I don't make them also do damage. Although some monsters say specifically they do both. I think the, the maybe possibly the specter says that. But like if, for instance, if you get hit by a white and it level drains you one level, that's the damage it does is whatever you get drained by the level. So if you're a magic user and you're like fourth level, you lose a D4 hit points and you go down to the third level. You don't lose a D4 hit points plus an additional, you know, D8 or whatever. I, that's one house, house rule that I do. And I think that does actually make it a little bit less deadly. Huh. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, I was literally ready to wrap this thing up and I saw a message pop up on my phone from the Pink Phantom. So we're going to add this message and that's how we'll end the show. Hey, Daniel, the Pink Phantom here. I've really been enjoying your episodes on OctoSR with the different... Uh, books and and other resources that you've been highlighting i particularly like the uh, goblins punch 100 minor magic minor, minor magic items blog posts i always find those kind of things very interesting i think it's very osr to give people these odd little things and see how they use them i know there's a uh, live play uh that i listen to the young on the young Grog, grognard podcast where uh, one of the items that one of his one of the characters in his party has our uh, uh, boots to give you monkey feet and it's been interesting to see how that character has used those to great effect over the course of time and he always comments on it whenever they find a way to use it because like I didn't know how useful that item was going to be when I gave it to you <laughs> yeah that's great I love that one of my favorite things besides the thing I just said about curse magic items one of my favorite kind of magic items to give is just this oddball magic item that does something and uh, one thing that I had with the, uh, was a magic item. It was a cloak that one of the characters got. And it, it did give them a plus. It was in 5e. It gave them a plus on their like uh, persuasion or whatever the role is there. Uh, but the other thing it did was no matter what happened, they always looked clean and well put together. And I got to tell you, the number of times that just that feature of it, the character like harped on because something happened. And I'm like, well, you know, you go in there. you the, Everybody looks at you guys. are all like looking like you've been in the field for 10 days, you look like you're covered in dirt, and you'd be like, my character looks like they just took a bath. And, would, <laughs> and it was just really funny because it would just actually work, and they loved it for, for the role play. They loved it for the, just the creative ways they could use it. 
So yeah, magic items that have kind of theoretically mundane uh, uses are my favorite things. Things that give a straight up plus this or plus that are, are just not as interesting to me. And I think you're right. That is, I mean, I'll say it's OSR only in the sense that I think that when you look back at literature, which is, you know, people have talked about how D&D starts to feed on itself, right? So we've got, you know, sword plus this, sword plus that, and then that becomes part of the culture. But when the game was early and people were getting into it, they were talking about magic items and things that they read about in books. So they would create these things. And when you read books, magic items are usually a lot more interesting than just, oh, this sword is a little bit better than a regular sword. So yeah, I love magic items like that. And with that, we will end the episode. Thanks, everyone. This was could have been, might have been one of my longest episodes ever. I appreciate everybody for tuning in if you got this far. Like I said at the beginning, if you want to leave me a message, you can uh, check the show notes. There'll be a link to Anchor there. You can also join my Discord server and send me a message there. You can also find a link to my Patreon in the show notes if you'd like to support me there. And uh, I'll talk to you soon.